Andy gave a great message last weekend on hospitality. And uh, I'm going to follow it up. And then I think Andy's got a couple more sessions, some things he, he wants to share. So, um, Hospitality is part of Jesus' strategy for taking over the world. And it's a, it's a very uh, important aspect of being a believer, and it has been both in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a big part of the Jewish culture, and it's a very big part of our culture, new believer culture. In the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, 33, and 34, I'll read this. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we find that in Leviticus 19. Being a stranger sensitizes us to the need of other people. And um, really it's a benefit, if you can think of it this way, I believe in every situation in life, we have something we can learn, something we can benefit from. Whether it's positive or negative, makes no difference. There's something in it of value if we pay attention. Even feeling like a stranger and even feeling alienated among a group of people has a benefit. It can sensitize you to how other people feel in that situation. And that's a very basic building block in being hospitable, is understand that the way they hurt when they hurt is the same way you hurt when you hurt. I've, um, over, over the years, um, people I know, a number of preachers, honestly, have gotten involved in different um, aspects of immorality, and they come under such terrible criticism. But I don't criticize them because... I have understood over the years that hurting is hurting no matter who is responsible for it. And if you can understand how someone else feels, it really will make you a much better person. And it really will begin to develop in you additional capacity and compassion to do something um, for them. And there you find it in the Old Testament. The um, Israelites were in Egypt, I think it was 430 years. Is either 400 years or 460 years, I can't remember exactly. But they were, only, they were slaves for 400 years. They were terribly mistreated. And that's the basis that um, the writer of the book of Leviticus gives for uh, people being sensitive to being hospitable. Now in the New Testament... We find the same thing. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continually steadfast, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. And um, so that's Paul's uh, letter to the Romans. In First Peter, Peter says it this way, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, and above all things, say that with me, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. 
be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And so actually hospitality is expected to be a high value for every every believer. Now one of the things um, we find in the life of Jesus is that he gave people a sense of belonging before they were really believing. He gave a sense of belonging before they were really believers in, in, in a lot of ways. And you can, you can, you can, when you read the Gospels, you can see that. They had no idea what they were getting into. But, but that's, that's an important ingredient. Now, if you're going to control people, which doesn't work, by the way, you should discipline your kids, but ultimately they're going to grow up to be whoever they are. But um, controlling people try to make you believe the right thing before you can belong. I actually know denominations where every pastor in the denomination had to have 100% doctrinal agreement with the head of the denomination, which is an absolutely insane concept. It's ridiculous. As a result, they had a huge number of churches. They all imploded and broke up and got mad and started shouting at each other and having nervous breakdowns. That's not a good church life, ladies and gentlemen. But Jesus gave people a sense of belonging before they really believed everything he was saying. I mean, I've, I have a great sense of belonging to the Lord, and I'm still trying to believe some of the stuff he's, he's... You ever read the New Testament, ladies and gentlemen? Anyway. Now, one of the, one of the things you have to recognize about this particular church is that some of you are going to feel like you're playing catch-up when it comes to the relationship aspect of who we are and what we do. And I'll tell you, it's just pretty simple. There are people in this church who have literally grown up together. And I mean they have known each other for 40 years. There are other people who have not that length of time in relationship, but pretty substantial relationships. And... um See, that's both a strength and a weakness. It's a strength to have a group of people who really do know each other well, warts and all, are still Christians, hello, still love the Lord, hello again, still like each other. Man, that's like the trifecta right there. Three of a kind, you know. Um, But when you show up, you may not start feeling like you fit in yet. Fair enough. Well, you know, if you understand the strength-weakness aspect of life, every single strength does have a weakness at a given point. So we need to work on our weaknesses, and, and part of our weaknesses is enabling people to find a place, find a way to connect, feel more part of what's, what's going on. Now, we've been hindered to a certain degree logistically because of our building situation and all that. And we do have some plans in the coming weeks to implement some things that we think will help people um, make those kind kind of connections. Um, but there are hindrances to hospitality. One of them is waiting to receive it instead of initiating it yourself. And by any of these 
comments I make, I'm not putting anybody down. I'm just making observations that, that I really believe are true. It says in Proverbs 18.24, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. And what that means is finding friends has a lot to do with first being friendly yourself and reaching out. And that, that can take a, a certain amount of humility. You, you, everybody has these little comfort zones they don't want to step out of. But I'm going to tell you, folks, stepping out of comfort zones the way life works. I mean, if you don't step out of comfort zones, you'll never find out who you really are. Um, you know, those walls that protect you from being hurt are the same walls that keep you from having meaningful relationships with other people. You just got to figure this out. Life hurts sometimes. I don't think you heard that. Life hurts sometimes. Any ladies here had painless childbirth lately? No. So the most, I mean, the way this thing starts, there's yelling and screaming and blood and stuff. So not to be terribly crude, but I do sort of like that. Anyway, you know, if you if you think you're just going to be in your little cocoon and somebody's going to come smother you with love, it's probably not going to happen. You need to extend yourself as well. But here's what it says, the rest of the verse in Proverbs 18.24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the idea here is if you are going to substitute human relationships and friendships, with what you need to be getting from the Lord, those relationships ultimately won't work. And that's what he's really saying. If you want friends, be friendly, but you've got to understand there's this other friendship level you have to develop for all the rest of your life to, to, really, to really work out. One of, the, one of the hindrances to hospitality is selfishness, um, being a pastor, particularly a number of years ago in a much more high-pressured situation, I ate lunch with Scott Volk. He's on our board. He's a great pastor friend of ours here in town. And he was talking about all these friends he had. And I said, man, I got enough friends. I don't want any more. I don't want to know anybody else under any circumstances. I told my wife one time, is it okay for me to be honest? Is that going to work? We were in church one morning. I just had it. I said, Donna, if one more crazy person comes up and says one more stupid thing to me, I think I just smack them. <laughs> and she said, you need a vacation. <laughs> I have not felt that way in a long time. Don't misunderstand me. But um, you can be so into yourself that you don't have any more room for people. And we should always have have more room. And another thing, Andy mentioned this last week, it's just being too busy. Um, That is a huge problem. The younger your family is, the probably the busier you really are in ways that you can't always control. And this, this, our leadership group started out with one child among the dozen um, of us. And I think to date, last, uh, last time we counted, there were 12 children in that same group of people over six years. So, I mean, you, you know, you don't ha- always have time for everything, but you need to prioritize. I think you need to pray, too. I think you need to ask the Lord seriously, who can I help, who can I connect with? Because you certainly can't connect with everybody. I mean, if, if um, 
and the picture of connectedness is the body of Christ, and that's where every member is placed in certain places for the body to work. You don't have arms coming out of the forehead, you know. You don't have all the parts of the body in the circumference of the head sticking all out. That would be very weird. So everybody, in one sense, is not joined to everyone else except indirectly. And then you are directly connected to certain people. So I think that's real important. Now, Jesus, I think more than we understand, demonstrated uh, hospitality on a number of different levels. Um, One of the remarks Jesus made to a disciple who said, I'll follow you anywhere and I'll do anything you want me to do. Jesus made this comment that doesn't make that much sense on the surface. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And what Jesus really meant was he wasn't looking for perfunctory followers. He was looking for people who understood how he thought. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was talking about having people that weren't just believers, but having people that really saw life the way he saw it. See, Jesus was looking to reproduce himself in people, and by that I mean to embody, for other people to embody how he saw life, not just be a member of the Jesus Club. And so what he was really saying was, at seeing, but the concept because of that particular verse of Scripture is Jesus and the apostles just wandered helter-skelter around Israel, sleeping in the woods and the bushes and doing miracles. That is not true. Jesus had his own house. Jesus had what was called his own city. I can prove that to you. Mark 2, verse 1. Um, And again, Jesus entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Well, another way you you say in the house in, in that language was he was at home. Jesus had a house. Say Jesus had a house. Jesus had a house. Well, if you look in Matthew um, Matthew nine one, I just love these little ideas you find about about Jesus. Jesus had a hometown. Um, Matthew nine one. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. To his own city. That city happens to be Capernaum. Actually, Matthew nine and Mark four are uh, two parallel stories that that I'm going to read part of here in a minute. He had his own house. He had his own city. Um, If you read Matthew 4, verses 12 through 14, it tells us that he dwelt in Capernaum. And the Weiss translation translates that he established his permanent home in in Capernaum. Um. Well, what, what was Jesus' house like? What did he use his house for? Well, let's, um, Jen, if you'll put the, uh, those verses up. This is Mark chapter 2. Let's read this together. Why don't you stand up? 
and your, keep your foot from falling asleep again. We have three slides. We're going to read all of them here. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was where? He was at home. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who forgives sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Okay. What that story is, is about the house that Jesus, uh, that Jesus had. And historians say it was next to the synagogue in Capernaum. I've actually been there years and years ago. And they believe he rented that house from Peter's family who um, were from Capernaum. Now, if you actually look at the configuration of the apostles, they were basically a relational band of guys. And then, of course, some ladies were part of a little bit larger, larger circle. And it's really, really pretty amazing. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and Matthew. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Grew up in the same town. They had history with, with each other. Jesus, James, and John were cousins. How many of you knew that? Jesus, James, and John were cousins. And Jesus, James, and John had a unique relationship, those three people that was deeper, more profound than any relationship any of the other apostles were in. Peter and Andrew were brothers and could have been cousins of James and John and were business partners. Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist along with Philip. Matthew and James were brothers. Philip was a friend of Nathaniel. Jesus and Simon the Zealot could have been cousins. So here's the point I'm making. Those guys put a high value on relationships. 
they weren't just these random knuckleheads wandering through Jerusalem one day and Jesus just willy-nilly picked them out. There was this long-standing relationship that some of those, not all of them, that some of them had. Now, the other thing is, in their culture, in the, in the Hebrew culture, families and relatives connected at least three times a year, a year to celebrate the feast, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those guys could have grown up knowing each other. So I don't think we can ever devalue um, the nature of relationships, and I think we should treasure, we should pray like the Dickens for people we've known a long time to really get saved and come into the kingdom. Because there can be a value to those relationships that God's really ordained for something um, profound. But when you look at this story about Jesus and his own house, you, you realize some things. First of all, he must have been a master of hospitality because the first thing we find out was the house was so full nobody else could get in. Um, and he was preaching. So he, he put a high value on relationships and he put a high value on the word. All right, then we discover that these four guys bring a paralytic and since they couldn't get in the door, they climb up on the roof of the house I don't think Jesus worried too much. It was Peter's house anyway, right? Matter of fact, the only place in the New Testament it mentions the fact that they tore the roof off the building there is in Mark's gospel. And Mark's gospel was written by John Mark, and John Mark was Peter's spiritual son. I think Peter might have had some feelings about that, about that roof getting torn up. But here's the thing. You know why Jesus didn't care if Peter's house got tore up so somebody could get some help? His house got torn up so we could get some help. Come on. That's really good right there. So Peter lost a few shingles. and What did Jesus lose for people to be touched and healed and whole? What happened to the house, his body? What happened to it? You know, if you see Jesus right, you don't worry too much when life costs you something to serve the Lord. So... They bring this paralytic, and, and the, the language here says they, how did, how did, they uncovered the roof where he was, so when they had broken through, can you imagine a mud house? I mean, what kind of a house can you just tear the roof off of and lure somebody down? I guess it's mud or Straw, I don't have any idea, but can you imagine being in a house full of people when somebody decides they're going to tear a big enough hole in the house to lower a man down on a bed? You have to admire those guys. You really do. You have to admire how much they love that guy. And you have, I love this, you have to admire how little they cared about what everybody else thought. The key to being a powerful Christian is not worrying about what other people think. I'm serious. Jesus says that's what destroys your faith. How can you believe you who seek honor from men? 
Now that doesn't, now here's what happens. To prove to people you don't care, you wind up doing a bunch of stupid stuff you never should do anyway. Well, that's still just an indicator that you care. You just don't, you should be like a Labrador retriever believer. You should just believe that everybody likes you even when they don't. Just refuse to be disliked. That's a really good word. Yeah, that's a really good word right there. Just don't accept rejection. It, they, they must certainly just not get what you really are because you're awesome. Right? When you, when you face the Lord whenever that is, they're not going to be there anyway. There are going to be no character witnesses because you need character witnesses when you don't know what the truth is. He knows what you did. <laughs> okay. I sort of enjoyed that personally. So they let the bed down. I, I am so glad um, scribes and Pharisees were in there who cared about what people thought who had all that dirt and dust falling down all over their phylacteries and spit curls and robes. and Anybody else feel that way? No? Okay. No, I'm so glad. You know, what does that tell me? It tells me this. When you have the real thing, there are some very awkward things that are going to happen. One of my best friends, when he got saved, threw up during the altar call. You just don't know. I love stuff like that when it's somebody else. I love stuff like that. Um, see, that's real life right there. That's not um, just as I am without one plea. Yeah, you're talking that way, but you you got designer jeans on going to the altar. You know what I'm saying? But I like this thing where God really moves. There's going to be some stuff going on that's not going to make everybody really happy. I remember when laughter broke out in my church a number of years ago. I love that. Who does not think laughter is a good thing? I don't get that. Who does not think being happy and having a good time is not a good thing in church? I don't understand. This lady got so angry, she was out in the parking lot and mad, and I said, um, I went out after her, I said, my dear, what, what is the problem? She said, you tried to make us laugh. <laughs> now think through that. As opposed to... Being serious and being a really awesome Christian are not necessarily the same things. Matter of fact, the most spiritual people I know are the happiest. And this old narrow-minded, fur your brow, denounce people, call yourself prophetic, is an imitation of the real thing. It is not the real thing. A friend of mine says, and, and, and this, is, this is a little bit of a slam on the prophetic movement of which I've been a part. He said, any jackass can kick down a barn. But it takes a wise master builder to construct something, to build something, 
to establish something, create something. And you don't build the kind of kingdom Jesus is talking about through criticism. You build it through encouragement and reinforcement of people's lives. That's what you do. That doesn't mean you ignore things they do they shouldn't be doing, but it means you don't determine that you are a high-level believer because you can pick out everybody's faults. Knowing what's wrong with somebody is not the key to helping them get over it. It's knowing who they really are and pointing them in that direction. You have to distract people out of the negativity to get where they're going. That was really good. Somebody ought to tweet that right there. And so the scribes were... How wonderful. Jesus, they lowered this guy down through the ceiling, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. What a wonderful thing to say to somebody, right? How many of you would like to know your sins are forgiven? (laughs) Well, all those religious guys getting mad about that. See, a, a true aspect of the wrong, there's a right kind of religion and a wrong kind of religion. The right kind of religion loves it when people's sins are forgiven, loves it when they're not held in check by their past, loves it when they find out who they are. But then there's this other religion that says, you haven't paid enough, uh, you, uh, no, 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 you're not getting, uh, you're not getting away with that. But Jesus says, okay, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Arise, take up your bed and walk. And so he just tells the guy, take up your bed and walk and go home. And the guy does and he gets completely healed. See, that's the kind, that's the end, that's the byproduct of New Testament hospitality is wholeness, healing. Forgiveness of sins. Okie doke. I overshot the runway, ladies and gentlemen. If you were blessed in the last four minutes, you just need to flush that part because it was over the hour. <laughs> I'm teasing. Now, we, those of you who may not realize, we've cut our meetings back to an hour until we get in our new building. And we announced last week our first meeting in our new facility will be October the 2nd. So it's uh, coming upon us. Let me pray for you. Why don't you stand up with me? And we have healing ministry teams today as well. Lord Jesus, we... Um, really lots of times need help being kind to strangers. Lord, I read, I'm just saying this. I remember, Lord, the word stranger or hospitality really means to love a stranger. Lord, we're asking that you would help us as a church be hospitable. We're asking that you would help us be especially kind and open to one another here and everywhere else we go. Lord, help us make that um, one of our chief core values, 
is, is kindness and hospitality. And Lord, thank you so much for how hospitable you've been. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't mind what happened to your house so that we could be healed and whole, so that we'd have opportunity to know life eternal, which we find in you and you alone. Release friendship in this place, Lord. I pray for an anointing. Lord, the favor of finding friends and finding relationships that are meaningful to be part of who we are. I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, folks, we do have ministry teams. Love to pray for anyone here. If you like prayer, you can come up and we'll help you in just a few minutes. Otherwise, God bless you guys. Have a great week. Thanks for coming.